Welcome to this episode of Beaverpod, the clinical catch-ups. The following session was recorded live during the Beaver Clinical Catch-ups webinars. For the full webinar experience, Beaver members can find past sessions online via the Beaver website. Hello, everybody. Um, so Sarah asked me to talk this evening about investigating and managing liver disease and to try and focus a little bit on what's new. Um, Alex, I can't make my slides move forward. Oh, do I need to use this? There we go, sorry. <laughs> um, so, liver disease is a big, vague title, and I'm afraid for the purposes of today, we are gonna stick very strictly to chronic, low-grade or subclinical liver disease, and only really discuss what happens in the UK. Um, to discuss things beyond the bounds of that would certainly take way more than half an hour. Um, and the purpose of today really will be to discuss those clinical cases that we all see on a really regular basis that cause quite a lot of grief um, sometimes and to really stick to that. Um, Sarah also passed on lots of your questions. So thank you for those. And I have made sure I hope to address them as we go along. So um, I thought I'd give us a little case example to get started. Um, this little dude was Cookie. Um, he's a 10-year-old Dutch warm-blood gelding, used for mid-level dressage. He hasn't been imported recently. He hasn't had any international travel. He's been slightly off-colour, underperforming, lethargic, just not working as well as normal for a couple of weeks. Um, all his friends in his yard are in good health. There are no abnormalities on physical examination. So, as is pretty common, you just pull a blood for a general screen. And this is what's in your inbox the next morning. Uh, so we're going to work through this blood in quite a lot of detail. I apologize in advance for if people if it's terribly boring, but that's what we're going to do. So uh, one of the first questions Sarah had sent me was, how relevant are the elevations in different liver parameters on blood samples from horses with liver disease? So here we go. Uh, um, so the first question really is, does this horse have liver disease? And the short answer is yes. All of these liver enzymes, well, well all of these enzymes can come from the liver. Um, and they show us that there is, certainly by all being elevated together, they show us that there is liver injury or inflammation. Um, some of them can come from other places, which is readily available in the literature, but all together, by far and away, the most likely thing is that there's liver injury. Um, GGT is the most sensitive of these enzymes. So if budget's limited or your profile available to you is limited, the one you really want to look at is GGT. So, um, yes, the reason I put this question up, what are you gonna do next, is that some people would stop at this stage. And my question is, have you got enough information or should you do more tests? It would be a short talk probably if we stopped here. So my answer would be, that's not enough information. You need to do more testing. And what do you need to do? The biggest thing you need to do is request bile acid concentrations. 
And we're interested in bile acids because they test liver function. So those liver enzymes that we looked at test whether there's inflammation or um, injury to the liver, but they don't test liver function. So here we go. We got some more results. And um, if we just go through these, in terms of looking at liver function, globulin concentration is useful. Um, it's often increased in these cases. I think our understanding of why is still probably a bit limited, but we think it may be because there's immunostimulation because you've lost some of the protective cells within the liver. So it's basically just part of the inflammatory response. Um, and if those, if the globulins are getting really high, they are thought to have a negative prognostic value, but they've got to be getting to the sort of 60, 70 range for that to be the case. Um, next up, we have bilirubin concentration. Um, this does go up in some horses with liver disease and reduce liver function, because again, they're not going to be clearing that bilirubin. Um, but it also is seen with inappetence and hemolysis, so it's not completely specific. Bile acid concentration, we said already, it's pretty important, and it's got quite strong um, prognostic indications. And then the last thing that, if you've got a hematology as well, um, is worth just looking at the neutrophil count, um, because we know that there's an association between um, compromised liver function and neutrophilia sometimes, again, just as part of this inflammatory response. Um, oh, from the top, does this horse have liver disease? Yes. Does they have liver failure? Yes, to a certain extent. And then the last question to ask when we're looking at these bloods is, could there be anything else going on alongside the liver disease? And I think it's important not to just go, oh, increased liver enzymes, liver disease, job done. Um, thing to look out for would just be, it's interesting to look at the hematocrit or PCB. Um, generally, most of the time anemia in horses is a sign of chronic disease. Um, and generally it's just a response to chronic disease. It's not primary anemia. So you don't need to be worrying about um, that in itself. It's just an indication of how long the problem's been going on. Um, it's important to look out for any indications of GI disease. Um, it's not uncommon to get GI disease and a inflammation in the liver as a consequence of that. Um, and particularly with hyperalbuminemia, I know that in other species, hyperalbuminemia is seen quite commonly with liver disease, but in horses, it's not common. Um, so if there is significant hypoalbuminemia, I think it's important to just check that there isn't another cause of that and GI disease would be the most common cause, particularly cyatostomin. So um, in terms of common things being common, hypoalbuminemia, just go checking that there isn't another GI-based cause. Um, and the last thing would just be um, hyperlipemia. So um, to check um, if the triglycerides are increased, if it's that kind of patient. So, uh, sorry, I'm being a bit mean, but, you know, ponies, cops, that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, what are you going to do next? Have we got enough information already? Should we do further tests? Um, I think at this stage, the question everyone was asking is, do biochemistry tests replace liver biopsy? And the short answer is going to be no. But um, I, the biggest and probably most one of the challenges is working out which cases need more investigation. So in the case that we've been discussing, there's quite a big increase in the liver enzyme activities. There's evidence of hepatic insufficiency or failure. Um, and also this horse has some clinical signs of abnormality, which we are ascribing to this liver disease, rightly or wrongly. Um, so I think in this horse, you're certainly justified. And in fact, I think probably be the right thing to do to take a liver biopsy in this horse. 
Um, I think in horses where the bile acid concentration is normal, there's no clinical signs, and you found the increased liver enzyme activity for another reason, then things are a little bit more subtle. And in those horses, you may be justified in just monitoring over time for a little bit and seeing what happens. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Um, those ones, maybe you don't need to rush into biopsying straight up all the time. Uh, hopefully I've just answered that question about the point at which liver biopsy is indicated, but unfortunately it's ultimately just a judgment call. There isn't a perfect cutoff of take a liver biopsy at this point, don't at this point. And obviously client anxiety for cost, etc., is all going to come into it. Um, so what tests are we going to do if we want to do some more? Um, ultrasound, biopsy, check on the other horses in the yard, um, serology or PCR. So we'll just work through these things and um, the relative benefits of them all. Um, so, oh, sorry, that picture is plonked over the text. Um, but ultrasound was really what I was talking about here. Um, so in this patient, there was a slightly subjective increase in echogenicity of the parenchyma. Um, it's subjective and I wouldn't get too hung up on that kind of thing. Um, you can also look at liver shape. Um, you can look for any abnormalities within the parenchyma. Um, cysts or a mass or anything like that. Um, and there is a little bit of breed variation. So um, there's more visi liver visible on the right-hand side in ponies and cobs. Um, I've always said that it's because their lung field is smaller. Um, and I think that is true. Proportionately, they have this little lung field and a big abdomen compared to thoroughbreds and sports horses. Um, so um, I think one question was, how useful is ultrasound in chronic liver disease? Um, if we're really honest, probably the number of horses in which you see an abnormality, which you're really confident is significant on ultrasound is quite small. But we're gonna come on to talking about biopsy in a second and you've almost certainly got your ultrasound out to take your biopsy. So why not just evaluate the liver while you're there? You might as well. Um, and if you stumble across something abnormal, well, that's very interesting. A lot of the time you probably won't. Um, and it is worth saying that if you're being thorough, um, you just want to look in the left cranio ventral abdomen as well, because sometimes you can see liver there and um, very occasionally cases surprise, you can really see quite a lot of liver on the left-hand side. Um, arguably, probably some of those horses are abnormal, but um, it's worth having a look. Um, if you haven't looked for it before, it will surprise you how far cranial it is on the left-hand side, um, but just have a little look. And um, the easiest way to be sure is liver is to get to the point where um, it crosses over with the spleen and you can see both on the same screen. Um, so biopsy, um, I am afraid I would be of the school of thinking that uh, liver biopsies should be ultrasound guided. Um, I, by all means, um, chip in if you do them without ultrasound guidance, but I think that these days, um, in general, people have access to some kind of ultrasound that can scan the liver. And I think we've got enough evidence that um, Abby Miles actually and Imogen Johns did a quite nice study at um, the RVC um, a good few years ago now, um, but they showed that if you take those two points between the hip and the elbow um, and ultrasound, you don't always come across liver underneath where you are. So I think um, it's pretty game to do it without ultrasound these days and the risk of pranging the kidney or duodenum or colon um, isn't to be underestimated. Um, however, the other thing that people sometimes do is measure clotting factors. Generally, actually clinically, we don't think that that's required. 
Um, again, Imogen Johns did a nice paper showing that um, it didn't affect outcome to check clotting factors in these cases. So it's not something we would routinely do unless we've got a particular concern. Um, I think another important thing before you get started is to warn the owners that you might not find the cause. I think sometimes people get into trouble because the owners think that this biopsy is going to solve all of their problems. It's not. It's just going to give you more information, but how much information you can't say until afterwards. Um, the most useful thing that comes from biopsies is that the clinical pathologists will normally give you a score. The um, score um, can then be used to guide prognosis. And that scoring system was developed by Andy Durham back in 2003 now. Um, and I just put the reference there for anyone that's interested. Um, when I take liver biopsy samples, I always put most of them in my histopath pot in formalin, but I always put one in a culture pot. Um, just sometimes it's useful to get culture. Particularly, I guess, um, in horses where the, if you found a hematological evidence of a big inflammatory response, neutrophilia or um, any raised inflammatory markers in particular. Um, so in terms of other tests we can do at this stage, um, owners are always wanting to know what's causing this. Um, one thing that can be interesting to do is to check the pasture or stable mates um, of the horse, check their liver enzyme activity and their liver function. Um, in the case that I was talking about, we didn't find any abnormalities in the other horses, um, but I think it sometimes gives you some indication about what might be going on if um, several of the horses on the property are affected. Uh, liver fluke. Um, again, something that can be useful to test for, but I think this one you really need to choose your population. So um, you want, I would only test horses in this situation if there's a clinical likelihood they could have liver fluke. So if they're co-grazing with ruminants, if they live in a wet, boggy area um, with really poached ground, which will allow the snail populations to proliferate. Um, and I think particularly if there's a history of liver fluke on the property, then I would pursue it. Um, the jury is still a bit out about exactly how good the serology is. Um, it's very specific, but we know that it doesn't have great sensitivity. Um, and also, if you're seropositive, have you currently got fluke? Um, fecal examination is not reliable in horses. Uh, lots of them will have non-patent infections or shed intermittently, so um, that's not particularly useful. Um, so the case that we've been discussing that we didn't test for liver fluke because uh, he lived in well-managed dry pastures without any ruminants. So the likelihood of him having liver fluke is really small. Um, mycotoxin testing. Um, this is something that's probably become reasonably fashionable in the last decade. Um, mycotoxins are produced by fungi. Um, and as we all know, there's fungi in forage and grain and bedding. Um, and there's plenty of fungi in forage that's not visibly moldy. Um, if you have a wet growing season followed by cold weather, um, you can get increased fungi. Um, and commercially, uh, test, uh, um, commercial testing kits are available. Um, I'm sure other people make them, but the one I know about is made by Altec. Um, and you just put a sample of the forage or the feed that you want to test into a little Ziploc bag and put it in their kit and send it off to them. Um, when this first 
came about, we all used to bundle all sorts of little bits and bobs into our testing bag. Um, but these days, they think they discourage the idea of you pooling your samples. So you can only test one um, substance at a time, so forage or pasta or whatever you want to test. Um, and the um, test does cost a couple of hundred pounds, so you can't, well, depending on your client's finances and the big, the severity of the problem, I suppose, um, might um, guide how much testing you do. Um, PCR for viruses associated with hepatitis is something that's also come about in recent years. So um, people have done some really nice research looking into the roles of viruses in equine hepatitis. Um, so there are flabby viruses, um, equine hepatitis virus uh, is quite similar to human hepatitis C um, and is thought to cause mostly a transient mild or subclinical problem. Uh, there are, there's equine piggy virus um, and one study identified that when there was co-infection with the hepatitis virus, um, the horses did seem to have a mild to moderate hepatitis. Uh, and then there's um, equine parvovirus. Um, this has been associated with equine serum hepatitis, or what certainly was called Tyler's disease when I was at vet school, um, in the USA. But that is very much in the USA, and it's not um, been so strongly associated with hepatitis in the UK. Um, and interestingly, despite that association with Tyler's disease, most infected horses don't develop clinical disease. So um, the etiology of Tyler's disease is still not completely understood. So I think it's fair to say that at the moment, we don't know for sure how much these hepatoviruses and the parvovirus are um, contributing to hepatitis in horses in the UK. But unless we look for them, we're probably not going to be able to answer that question. So they are available as PCR tests um, in the UK labs now, and you can either do blood or biopsy tissue. So. I thought it was useful to look at some biopsy results. Um, so these are from that horse that I was talking about. Um, he's got chronic changes. There is some fibrosis and there's some low-grade neutrophilic inflammation. So um, the scoring system set out by Andy Durham uh, gives him a fibrosis score of two, um, some irreversible changes, they scored one, and some inflammation gets a two as well. So overall, he gets a five out of 14. And as is so very commonly the way, a clear cause of the microscopic changes isn't evident. And there was no growth from the culture. So uh, generally at this stage, the next thing you need for your clients is a prognosis. Um, so um, there've been quite a lot of studies looking at the prognosis of liver disease now, which is quite nice. Um, several studies have found various factors associated with the prognosis. So high bile acid concentrations, so bile acids of over 20 millimoles per litre, um, increased globulin concentration, as I said already. Um, well, some studies have said over 45, others say 60 or 70, so um, certainly getting pretty high. Um, and low albumin concentration. Although I said earlier to beware of concurrent GI disease, I think this is quite important because low albumin concentration either reflects, and probably more commonly, concurrent GI disease or quite severe liver disease. And I think differentiating those two things, for example, cyathostomiasis and mild liver inflammation on top of all the gubbins that's draining from the gastrointestinal tract because of the cyathostomiasis, 
versus quite serious liver disease with hypoalbuminemia. So um, I think that's something just to bear in mind. Um, a few other studies found um, that ultrasonographic abnormalities could be related to prognosis. Um, and again, that may be just because I think that um, to see really marked ultrasonographic abnormalities often reflects quite severe disease. Um, and then more subtle increases in ALP or GGT or really high white cell count. Um, and some found an association with fibrinogen concentration, but not all. Um, in terms of looking for a prognosis, biopsy scoring gives the best specificity. Um, and in general, a score of zero one, um, they said were, those horses were equally likely to survive for six months and at a pretty low mortality. A score of two to six, there is an increased risk of non-survival and a higher mortality rate. And once you're getting over seven, um, the risk of non-survival really increases quite significantly. Um, this is a really nice paper um, from Bettina Dunkel um, comparing using um, serum bile acid and biopsy score for long-term survival. Um, so I think if we just go through it, um, she showed that having a serum bile acid concentration of more than 16 um, gave about a 78% sensitivity and a 65% specificity. Um, if you put your marker of bile acid concentration up to 20, um, the sensitivity goes down a little bit, but it becomes really quite specific. And then if you have a histology score of more than two, um, the specificity is 95%. Um, and if the histology score is more than three, um, the specificity goes up to 100%. Um, so hopefully that gives some indication that if you're using serum bile acid concentration and histology score together, you're getting as close as you can to giving a reasonably uh, useful prognosis. Uh, so again, if we just go back to looking at our case, um, this horse does have, um, in terms of factors associated with poor prognosis, seen in several studies, he's got high bile acid concentration. He's also got some ab ultrasonographic abnormalities, although those are subjective. Um, and he has got a um, biopsy score between two and six. So he is not completely off the hook. He has got some um, significant liver changes going on here, and we probably need to do something about this. That brings us to what treatment options or medical support options are there for these cases. And I don't know if anyone else's life feels like this, but sometimes there's more and more of these supplements and you just think, wow, what are we going to do? So uh, I thought I would just run us through what is out there. Um, this will include antibacterial therapy, anthelmintics, toxin absorbents, anti-inflammatory therapy, antifibrotics, antioxidants, diet, should we be doing anything about that? And then um, I won't talk any more after this about this, but actually it's important to just remember to manage any concurrent diseases, um, particularly if these horses have PPID. Um, it's important to keep on top of whatever else is going on. Uh, so antibacterial therapy. Um, I think historically, probably people used quite a lot of antibiotics in horses with liver disease. Um, I think in our modern times of trying to be really responsible with antibiotic use, I think you need to be careful to think about, is it really warranted in this case? 
Um, and I think you need to have some indication that you think there might be bacterial hepatitis. So for me, those things might include neutrophilic information, a positive culture response, although that's, I guess, relatively unusual, um, or a history of a recent fever. Uh, if you think you need to use antibacterial therapy, you're gonna need to go broad spectrum. And in general, probably for quite a long period of time. So you're gonna need something that can be administered orally. Um, TMPS or doxycycline in the UK are gonna be the most common choices. Um, and then the other thing is they're gonna to need to monitor outcome over time, but um, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, Anthelmintic treatment. Uh, this is only gonna be relevant for cases where you think there's evidence of liver fluke. So either occasionally you might see results, um, indications of liver fluke on your biopsy. Um, you might have positive serological results and a strong environmental um, indication that there might be liver fluke. Uh, if that's the case, uh, what most people would be using is triclobendazole um, at somewhere between 12 and 15 milligrams per kilogram given orally. Um, it's worth noting if you haven't used it before, it's certainly in my hands at least, triclobendazole only comes in like massive five litre bottles. Um, so you might want to buddy up with a local farm practice if, it, um, if you need some. Uh, Anti-inflammatory therapy. Um, Non-septic hepatitis is really common. I'd go so far as to say that probably the most common thing that we see. Um, and so anti-inflammatory therapy is often going to be indicated. Um, and on what's probably the world's most boring slide, <laughs> sorry, um, glucocorticoids. Um, prednisolone is probably your friend in this case. It's um, easily available orally. Um, and again, you're going to need to give it for quite a long period of time to see a significant response. Um, lots of people said, what's milk thistle or how does it work? Um, the active compound is called silibin. Um, I'm sorry, I find that hard to say. Um, and it is just a plant extract. Uh, in humans, it has really quite remarkable effects shown in vivo in research studies. So um, it is something that in people really does work. It has really good antioxidant, anti-inflammatory and antifibrotic effects. Um, they, they call the clinical trials in humans promising. Um, but I think one thing that it's important to note is that it has really superior, um, well, silibin itself, so the processed active compound has better bioavailability in humans um, than the um, less well-processed versions. Um, but also the bioavailability in general in horses is less good. Um, but there have been studies showing that it increases antioxidant capacity in horses. So I think that it's something that we know works really well in people. We know that there seems to be some effect in horses um, and that the bioavailability is not great. So I think there's certainly justification for using it. Um, and hopefully over time, people might do some more studies um, on dosing and that kind of thing. Um, SAMI is something that's had increasing um, discussion in liver disease in recent years. Um, so it has a role in methionine metabolism and also in the repair of hepatocytes or preventing oxidative damage. And in people at the moment, the evidence is mostly from in vitro studies, um, but they think it has a role in helping to modulate the immune response in chronic viral hepatitis in people. 
So again, it's come from human medicine and in people it does seem to have a positive effect, um, but there are no clinical trials um, for horses with hepatopathies at the moment. Um, my colleagues laugh at me for my love of vitamin E, but um, it really is a very potent antioxidant um, and there's no reason, and in people again, um, it would be quite popular um, and there's no reason to think it wouldn't work in this situation. Um, it is important to um, have the right formulation of vitamin E. Um, so you want the alpha tocopherol isoform um, and the RRR stereoisomer. Um, and it's just important because depending on the formulation that you buy, um, that's not always the case and then it's likely to be less effective. Um, so I think in quite a lot of our patients, we see some evidence of fibrosis. So the logical conclusion would be to try antifibrotic therapy. Um, and this probably comes in two forms. One would be just to, if you reduce inflammation and you reduce the ongoing hepatic damage, then you will reduce the subsequent fibrosis. Um, and uh, there's, there are more specific antifibrotic agents, but there's very limited equine specific evidence about this. So um, the two things that people try most commonly would be pentoxyphylline and corticosteroids. Um, several people submitted questions about dietary modification or for practical feeding tips. Um, I hope this doesn't seem too outlandish, but actually in patients with chronic low-grade liver disease, there's no reason to think they need specific dietary modification. It's not the same situation as small animals. Um, horses' diets are proportionally much less made up of protein to start with, so maybe that's one of the reasons why it's not required. Um, and I think also probably in the past, literature has got a bit confused between horses with really severe clinical uh, liver disease and hyperaminemia and that kind of thing. We're not talking about those cases. Those cases probably do need some dietary intervention. Um, these chronic low-grade cases uh, without really significant clinical signs, um, you can probably just leave their diet alone. I think it's probably worth checking what they are being fed. Um, we all come across those horses on some fairly weird and wacky diets. And I think if there's anything really out there going on, you might need to intervene. Um, and you certainly want to avoid any severe weight loss, but also avoiding obesity is always beneficial. But um, in these cases, they don't want to be over-challenged um, with fats. So um, I put some information here about what is contained in different food substances, not particularly thinking you might, you'd need to edit any of this, but just in case horses are receiving loads of a particular substance. Um, so, um, Food substances that are slightly lower in protein and higher in carbohydrate uh, would include grass, hay, sugar beet, barley, oats. Um, substances with higher protein, soya or linseed. Um, there is suggestion that branch chain amino acids might be beneficial. So these are in sugar beet and alfalfa. You want to avoid really high starch diets. It's pretty much true of all horses anyway. Um, and I think historically people used to say you shouldn't feed oil. Um, actually, we know now that at sort of low or standard quantities for a horse, um, that seems to be okay. And then the last thing would just be to be sure that they're having appropriate vitamin and mineral supplementation. Um, feel free to fire some questions about that if you want at the end, because I know that that maybe is not quite the historic way of thinking about things.
Um, so we've done all our investigation, we've instigated some kind of treatment protocol. Um, then the question is, how do we monitor these horses? So the most readily available thing will be serial blood tests. Um, if they had abnormal function tests to start with, then um, as well as liver enzyme activity, you want to be sure to be monitoring those function tests over time. How often? I would certainly say not more often than every two to three weeks. And if the situation's not too dire, you could go for less often than that. It's gonna take at least that long to see significant changes in your results. And I think it drives everyone potty if you're looking at them really often and nothing's changing. Um, should we be doing serial biopsy? I think it's something we didn't used to do very much. Um, but in horses with quite marked biopsy changes, um, it could be a useful tool to help us decide, are we actually making some progress with our treatment? So um, hopefully that was a useful whistle-stop tour of uh, chronic liver disease. Um, my takeaway points would be always check bile acid concentration. Bile acid concentration and histopathology offer you the best detail about treatment options and prognosis. Um, do consider whether you can identify a cause and whether it's worth doing any testing on that front, but don't stress about it if you don't find a cause. The most common thing probably will be that you don't. Um, I would check the herd mates and make sure to monitor progress whilst you're on treatment, but also after you discontinue that treatment. Um, I put a few little reading things on here in case anyone is interested. Um, the top one is Bettina Dunkel's um, paper looking at the bile acid concentrations and histopathology and the um, long and short and long-term outcomes. It's quite an interesting study, I think. Uh, the one below is Imogen Johns. Um, again, it's a discussion of, um, it's quite a nice um, review of recent literature about whether biopsies are helpful or not. And the bottom one I put in is, um, I really like this article, um, it's from Javim, and it's a really nice review of vitamin E and how it might help. And this is Christmas, I couldn't resist the little donkey. Um, I hope that was useful and hopefully we can have some good questions and Thank you, Sarah, that was brilliant. Um, if anybody has got any questions, do just either unmute yourselves and talk up or um, pop something in the chat box. That's the little um, speech bubble type thing down on the bottom of your screen. I've got a question. So with the case you were presenting, Cookie, he was in the sort of middle of the range for prognosis, not good, not horrific. What sort of timescale would you give an owner for that um, to ex to hope to see an improvement in, um, or to hope to hope to have them sort of back to normal, that sort of thing? I guess I'm cautious at the beginning about timescale because some of these cases take a while. So I guess I would say to them, two to three months to. Um, hope to get the bloods completely back to normal. I'd hope to see a clinical improvement within weeks. Like in that horse way is a bit off color and a bit rubbish. I'd probably try and persuade them not to ride for a couple of weeks, but I would hope that after that, they would, he would be clinically better. But yeah, it can take several months to get the bloods back to normal. Okay, thank you.
<laughs> what's causing all these cases where we can't identify a cause. I'd be, well, I was going to say a millionaire if I knew the answer, that's probably not true at all, but um, we don't know. People are looking, there's people doing really interesting research. Um, Jessica Kidd, who works at Nottingham Vet School, um, is doing work on the PCR tests and um, the viral components of these things. Um, and uh, Scott Peary's group, I think, are involved in some of this testing. Um, and the guys in the States are looking at it. So people are working on it, but we don't know the answer. I mean, I could fling some wild speculation out there, but it, that's all it would be. I'm sorry, but it's probably a very unsatisfactory answer. I also apologize, I'm not leaving. It's just really cold in our house. Um, how sensitive do you think bloods are for detecting liver disease? Uh, sensitive. They are sensitive. The bloods will tell you if there's a problem. Um, so if there's a current active problem, you should see an increase in liver enzyme activity um, if there's current inflammation. Um, the um, bile acids and things give you much more of an indication about function. And the one thing it's important to note, although thankfully this doesn't happen very often, is that if your liver is really in a bad way, you can get to the point where the function is dreadful and the bile acids are really high, but the liver enzyme activity is not very high anymore because there's not much liver left to be inflamed or healthy liver. Um, uh, but that is like one of those things that happens in textbooks and not very often clinically. Uh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna read this question from Lauren. Hi Sarah, I work at an equine charity where we see a large number of animals with liver disease. Most are currently three or four biopsy score uh, they're on milk, thistle, vitamin E, and prednisolone. Some have deteriorated on treatment. What would you do next? Switch to DEX, uh, pendroxyphylline, lactulose, um, and they're deteriorating, but the bile acids are getting worse um, despite treatment. Inciting causes usually ragwort exposure. So I guess that's one thing I didn't talk much about. At the risk of being a bit depressing, Lauren, I think those cases may be going to be hard to get back. So. Um, ragged work toxicity is one of the things in which you're going to get a less good recovery. Um, the damage from the ragwort toxicity and the megalocytosis generally um, inhibits regeneration of the liver more than other insults. So um, I'm afraid those cases maybe have a less good prognosis. Um, and I know that it sounds like they haven't got a very bad biopsy score, but um, I think this is probably the point at which sometimes the biopsy doesn't completely reflect what's going on clinically. And I think you have to add in the clinical picture and the bile acids yeah. and put it all together. Um, and also, unfortunately, the biopsy is not representative of the whole liver. Um, and I guess that's something else I didn't talk about. If we're really getting excited about these cases, should we be biopsying in multiple sites, left and right? I don't know, maybe we should, until we try it, we're not really gonna know, but it's not something most of us do on a routine basis, but it's certainly something you could consider. Um, what would you do next in terms of treating those horses? Um, I haven't used DEX long-term that much in these patients, which isn't like me. I give a lot of DEX to a lot of horses, but um, for some reason I do mostly stick to bread, but it wouldn't be wrong to try stitch, um, switching to DEX. Um, pentoxyphylene use long-term in a big number of cases might get quite expensive, but in the worst ones, yeah, you could give it a try. Um, Lactulose isn't going to have a big effect on the liver disease per se, 
um, it's only really going to help if those horses have got clinical signs associated with the liver disease and particularly of um, uh, early onset hepatic encephalopathy or anything like that. So I wouldn't worry about the lactulose other than that. I hope that answers that question a bit, Lauren. I'm sorry, it's probably a bit of a fudge, but I would say the worst ones of those are maybe going to be tricky to get back if it is ragwort toxicity. Um, Lisa says, how critical is fluid therapy in the treatment plan? Oh, and sorry, Lisa, I am afraid at the beginning I said I was sticking only to chronic subclinical low-grade cases. So we didn't really talk about really sick liver disease cases because they are quite a different situation. But you've got a case with a bilateral more than 50, biopsy score 5, patients in the clinic on all the drugs. You've got it on fluids. Um, does it need to stay on fluids? Uh, I, that's not really liver specific, I don't think. I think you just need to, in terms of liver disease, it doesn't need fluids unless um, it's inappetent and not eating and drinking. So I wouldn't, from that point of view, I wouldn't particularly worry about the liver. I would just assess whether you think the horse needs fluids from point of view of um, PCV, lactate, uh, physical exam, heart rate, um, whether it's cheered up and is eating and drinking a bit. Um, that's really what's going to decide that, I think. Uh, Fernanda says, um, <laughs> everyone's got a dodgy internet connection. She missed a bit about treatment. Uh, would I use culture seen as an antifibrotic? Um, it's one of those things that's sort of published and discussed, but I haven't used a huge amount clinically and I don't know that lots of other people are. It wouldn't be wrong to try it. Um, so yes, I think there are published doses out there. I have to admit, I would have to look one up, but there are published doses available. I think even possibly on the Handy Beaver Drugs app. Um, and um, so you could definitely give it a go if you wanted to, it wouldn't be wrong. Uh, in terms of how long for, all of this stuff with liver disease, you're looking at weeks into months of treatment rather than days. Uh, Dana says, hello, have you some experiences with seasonal fluctuation of liver enzymes, especially GGT? All my horses have increased GGT long-term, the peaks always in November. One of the horses is more reluctant to move. The others don't have clinical signs. They're just hobby horses um, living on pasture. The bilateral aren't elevated. Um, and LDH uh, that's really interesting. And I've definitely discussed this with other people about whether there are seasonal changes. Um, and it's interesting if you've been watching your horses over time. Um, and yes, I think that is something that we do see sometimes. I don't think it's something where we've got enough of a pattern to say there's a particular seasonal fluctuation in all horses, but I think probably depending on different properties. I think it's really interesting your horses are out of pasture. I guess I'd be inclined to think that this is some kind of pasture associated thing, either that they are munching low levels of some kind of toxin from the pasture, or um, I don't want to cause mass panic about worms or seem like I'm obsessed with worms. But um, the other possibility would be, I think uh, we sometimes see an increase in liver enzyme activity um, in horses where they've got really high worm burdens. And it's just that the colon um, becomes really inflamed with the worms and it's draining all that inflammation from the colon. And, um, exposure to more gut contents, I guess, if it's really inflamed um, through the liver, and so then the liver becomes a bit inflamed. Um, so those would be two wild hypotheses, but I have no evidence for either of those, as I'm afraid is the case with most liver disease, but they seem like logical things to me. I suspect it's more of that kind of thing than um, 
some kind of intrinsic seasonal variation. Liver enzymes wouldn't really work like that. They're not hormones. I hope that makes sense. Um, yes, Lauren, I wouldn't feel bad about your cases of liver disease. Um, and I think that's one of the things I would take away from this. Um, sorry, Jeremy, I know you asked me to speculate more about causes of liver disease, but toxins, more viruses that we can't identify. Um, those have got to be the biggest two things, right? Um, but there's loads of these. There's so many diseases where, unfortunately, at the moment, we can't identify the causes. I think there's probably lots of neurological conditions that also um, we don't identify viral causes for that are probably out there. Um, one day when we can do these giant mass PCRs, various very clever people like Jessica Kidd and Richard Pearcey are saving lots of samples and one day we'll just process them all and answer all these questions. And um, maybe Beaver don't record that because that's wild speculation. But anyway, um, I think it's fair to say um, that that kind of stuff is going on. Uh, Roxanne says that we see lots of what I assume are past um, parasite related issues. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, Georgia says, can you dramatically improve biopsy grading and overall prognosis with treatment? Or are you simply supporting and trying to increase quality of life and gain some time? I think you can make a big difference. So um, it, this is where it comes down a little bit to severity of disease when you start. And this is where um, having some idea of the cause and particularly just um, being able to sort of separate out the ragwort toxicity cases or cases with significant megalocytosis. Um, because I think in the other cases where they've got this chronic low grade hepatitis, some of those you'll see a really massive improvement um, and some of those sources will do fine. Um, so I guess this is the point at which um, the sort of dividing up into the categories makes a big difference. So that slide I showed you about the low grade biopsy horses doing really well and the middle grade biopsy horses being a bit of a mixed bag and the really high grade biopsy horses not doing very well. That's where this is really important. If they're in that really high grade biopsy category and they've got significant clinical signs, those horses probably are more in the supportive quality of life category. The horses in the bottom category of little or no biopsy changes, those horses could do great really long term. So um, I hope that answers that question. Okay, that's great. Are there any other questions out there for Sarah? I've got some thank yous coming in. I hope it helps. These cases are tricky, mostly because the clients want them fixed quickly and they want answers and often you can't provide either of those things and you shouldn't feel bad about that. <laughs> that would be my experience, is that I'm impatient, but the owners are even more impatient. <laughs> Yeah. And, and getting in there early with the warnings that you might not have any answers and you might not fix it quickly, I think is important to a satisfactory outcome for everybody. Do you have any gut feeling on how common ragwort toxicity as is as opposed to mycotoxins and viral things in the cases that you see? Because I know years ago it was everything was ragwort poisoning. Yeah. But I think we've got slightly better now. <laughs> yes. My impression would be that in general, the general horse owning population has got much better. And I don't see much ragwort toxicity in my routine cases. I think 
the charities where I've done some work, we would see a lot mm. more ragwort toxicity in those cases. So I think there's probably a bit of a divide there that um, people doing lots of charity work will, I think, still see lots of ragwort toxicity. Everyone else, I think not so much. I think one thing it is worth being aware about the ragwort toxicity as well is that the toxic insult kind of been a long time ago. So you will occasionally, and I think I do still occasionally see ponies where, um, you know, they've moved house quite a lot over the years and the current owners are doting and looking after them and they definitely haven't been exposed to any ragwort, but they were exposed quite a long time ago. Um, and as we were talking about before, I think those horses, the damage has been done, you sometimes can't get them back. But yeah, in general, I think it's a lot better than it was. That's uh, Dana, your post, I'm afraid I don't quite understand. Are you talking about um, liver fluke or about uh, strong gals in the gut? Do feel free to unmute, unmute Dana if it's easy, easier than typing. I can't unmute you. Okay, so they had uh, big strong gal burdens and then got um, secondary liver inflammation, I'm guessing. I think that is something that we see. Um, I would love to do a research project to look at this and I even got as far as trying to work out how we would do it, but think it'd be quite big and complicated and involved so until one day we get lots of funding I think sadly we can't. Uh, levels of vitamin E. Um, I'm probably guilty of a little bit of variation on that front. If they are these chronic low-grade cases I think one to two thousand international units is okay. Uh, if they were super sick um, and certainly for some neuro cases as well we would go up to six thousand. This episode of BeaverPod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.